Kiora, this program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Wellington Access Radio, make your voice heard. Kia ora, Wellington. Uh, I'm Laura. I'm Sadie, and I'm just on the desk today. Laura's going to be doing all the talking. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I have two very cool interviews um, uh, for the afternoon today. So in the second half, it's all about local elections. Are you excited for the local election, Sadie? Yes, I am actually. I'm going to go to uh, meet the candidates because um, I'm actually Eastern Ward, so they haven't quite started up yet. Going to go to the Greater mm-hmm. Wellington one this week, though. Oh, fabulous! And oh, then yes. I think it might Here be on the weekend that there's the local one. So yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Great. Um, well, uh, you're in Eastern Ward, are you? Yeah, just by like about fifty meters. Oh. <laughs> well, one of your uh, candidates, one of the candidates from your ward, young. A woman is running, um, Steph Edlin. She's going to join us this afternoon. This is part of my effort to speak to the the young, new, independent voices who have come into local elect- elections this year, partially, partially on the back of School Strike for Climate and all of these youth political movements that seem to be exciting young people to engage with politics. So that's the second half of the show. Good stuff. Yeah. It'll be the start of your um, education for who to vote for, I think, Sadie. Yeah, definitely. I've got a bit of work to do on that. And <laughs> my teenage son's quite keen. He can't vote yet, but he's interested. So oh, yeah. he might come along too, which is cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, it's good to mm. engage with those things. Yeah. Hey, um, before you, you jump into this half... Tell me. I just wanted to promote something that I've got involved with with a whole bunch of other people called Wellington Conversations. Um, it is a free series of events where we're aiming just to make community connections by people having facilitated conversations. So I've now trained as a facilitator along with about 56 other people. Um, wow. Yeah, and actually the first event is starting in about half an hour at Deluxe Cafe. Yeah. Um, and then they're just going to be on over the next couple of weeks and then recurring each month. Um, so it should be heaps of fun. What is a facilitated conversation? Well, it's got a set topic. So this month's topic is um, being neighbourly. Huh. And then there will be sort of sub-questions within that to lead the conversation. And we're just hoping that people who might not normally get to talk to each other will be able to come in and have this conversation around a set topic. So just to make it a little bit more profound. You know how often you'll talk to people, but it's just about the weather or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, <laughs> which is neat as well, but this is just to take it a little bit deeper. Yeah, having a deeper conversation yeah. and with with strangers, but people from your community. Mm. So they're all over the city. Um, I'd love for people to come check it out because it's and a pilot program. So yeah. where Whereabouts? Um, well, are there um, multiple locations? Multiple locations. Oh, neat! So, so there might be one near me. Definitely. There's. Hmm. So I'm going to be doing one in Newtown and Oriental Bay, also. So kind of two different areas. Yeah, cool. And but they're all over the place. So check out WellingtonConversations.nz, and you can see a full list of what's on. Or check it out on Facebook as well. And you can click on the events and like them. Yeah, I hope to see some of our listeners there. That'd be great. Yeah, that sounds interesting. <laughs> oh, cool. That's a cool project, Sadie. Yeah, uh, it's exciting. Uh, I'll let you get on to your next exciting Yeah, I'm going to kick into <laughs> our first interview. It's all about 
Um, I guess saving the world. So every year, <laughs> just <laughs> you there. can you can confirm that, Bernadette. <laughs> uh, every year, about a billion items of clothing are made on the planet. And the Formery is a company on a mission to reduce the impact of those 100 billion items by getting more value out of our clothing, reducing or yeah, reducing uh, the use of new resources, reusing what we can, and turning what would be waste into useful things. So Bernadette Casey is the founder and creative director of the Formery, and she's here to tell us more. Hi, Bernadette. Hi, kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you for joining us. So, just kick off. Just tell me, how did the formery uh, come to be? Um, we started back in 2008 by accident, really. I had a company importing textiles from China for interiors. And a friend of mine who is a marine biologist, Dr. Eric Dorfman, was writing a book on global warming and needed another chapter for his editor. And he said to me, what do you know about sustainable textiles? And at the time, it was really little. I knew the term and that was about it. Mm. So I had a month to research and the research just blew my mind. I thought, we're doing this all wrong. So we totally tipped our business model on its head and started looking at what waste textiles were out there. What what waste textiles? And what kind of waste textis, textiles did you find? Well, we looked immediately in Wellington, and we have such strong coffee culture. These jute or burlap coffee sacks was sort of number one waste in textiles. And so looked at how we could reuse them, made these great fedoras and hats and... Um, was in a shared office with an American interior designer who had friends that were interior designers for Starbucks head office in Seattle. And she said, oh, I think Starbucks will love these. So we leveraged our way in, jumped on a plane, presented the hats, and they hated them. <laughs> they, <laughs> they said they didn't want to look like hot dog vendors. But the upside was, what we didn't know, is that they were looking at refurbishing their stores worldwide. And so um, we ended up developing um, te a textile with them. So two-year development program, and yeah, that's how it started. Wow. So it started with that, that project to, I guess, uh, reuse coffee sacks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what other kind of projects, or, or how, how did it progress? Well, we, we launched it to a huge fanfare. We won awards from um, Prince Charles and um, sustainable design guru Kevin McLeod, and we were feeling pretty flash. And then it wasn't till after we'd won all these awards that we actually saw one of Starbucks's warehouses. And as you can imagine, it was just vast. And you can imagine you'd take out a thousand kilos of coffee sacks and it would just come flooding back in. It was kind of the, one of those scenes from Fantasia where the water keeps flooding back in and mm. you're trying to bail it out. And we realised then that individual projects weren't going to solve it and that we needed to take a systems approach to it. Okay, what does that look like? Now it looks like the textile reuse programme. So... Um, cool. 2015, we were working on a project in Italy, taking the, the straw from rice harvesting and turning that into a textile. And we were approached by New Zealand Post who'd been working. They've been trying to upcycle their used poster uniforms. And... 
but then struggled with market demand for them, the cost to them, the scalability of it. So they brought us in to review the project um, and we suggested to them that in order to to support a supply chain for reprocessing all, all this corporate all these corporate uniforms, that they invite other like-minded um, organisations into the programme. And that's kind of where it kicked off. And so it became the textile reuse programme. We've now got um, some really great partners. We've got Alsco, you know, the world's largest laundry. We've got Dean Apparel, New Zealand's largest uniform supplier. We've got retailers like Barker's menswear, Wellington Zoo for their conservation knowledge, um, Wellington City Council, so they're on the steering committee. And, um, yeah, building this macro system. So if we can build a system, because New Zealand is a really small and remote, remote island, so if we can build a system in New Zealand that catches our used textiles and... Um, and for them to go back into production instead of going into landfill and rotting away and creating greenhouse gases. If we can do that within a contained market like New Zealand, we can either replicate it in other um, remote areas or replicate it in large cities or or large um, regions Mm -hmm. where you just replicate it to to build scale. And then we're we're not sending 100 billion pieces of clothing to landfill. Yeah. Wow. So, um, so is it starting out with uniforms? Is that my understanding correctly? Like we did it- start out. Well, we started. We really needed to understand what the problem was. Sure. So we audited the organisations we were working with. We audited their clothing consumption. How many garments they were buying. What were they? Because each different fabric type requires a different type of processing. So how you deal with a wool garment is different to how you deal with a polyester garment or a silk garment or a nylon garment. And they might have different, depending on what kind of work they're doing, they might have a different type of uniform for their business. Yes, that's right. So in New Zealand, obviously, they've got the koru. They don't necessarily want, well, they definitely don't want, their their beautiful koru garments re-engineered and walking around Wellington in a different sort of state as a pair of shorts or as a bandana or so they're quite um, brand sensitive so it's really important for for organizations with strong brands that 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 those clothes aren't re-engineered that they're taken back to fibre form and then they can be reused. Wow so is it could can any textile, can any article of clothing be reused, be reformed into something else that might be useful? Yeah, it can. Wow. You just need the capability to do mm. it. <laughs> yeah, so um, one of the projects we did was actually taking in New Zealand's Koru uniforms and we worked with an organisation in um, on the western seaboard of the States called Moral Fibre through chem- green chemistry, actually E. coli, which gets a bit of a bad rap. Um, we, <laughs> <laughs> we used it to break down um, the polyester into its chemical construction mm-hmm. and then you can re-extrude it as recycled PET. Yeah and what's that useful for? Oh anything made of plastic like that clipboard, yeah. um, furniture, glasses, frames, headphones, chairs, you name it. Wow so 
instead of going to clothes going to landfill, they can be reused into um, plastic pellets to be made into any kind of plastic object. Yeah, and then once that plastic's no longer needed, moving away, we need to rapidly use move away from that single use plastic. But plastic is an amazing. An amazing product if you want something that's durable. We've just been using it in the wrong way. Mm. So if we have our polyester garments, we can put it through green chemistry, uh, re-extrude it, becomes recycled PET. We can make all sorts of things from it, and then we can recycle it again. Cool. So it shouldn't be ending up in our seas and in our oceans. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, is what what are the steps to diverting a hundred billion pieces of clothing from <laughs> landfill? Um, starting out with uniforms is that a good first step, or what, what do you what do you see happening in New Zealand to um, have a greater and greater impact? Well, the reason why we started with uniforms is yeah. because of, because of corporate purchasing, you'd end up we had a known supply of say. 10,000 uniforms and we know what they're made of they all are located generally in one place and so they're easy to manage compared to um, domestic clothing you could you know go to a charity bin and you'll get a polyester this uh, a cotton that there's only one of these is you know it's Mm-hmm. It was an unknown supply but mm-hmm. with the corporate textiles it's a known supply of volume yeah um and where where does this magical processing how does it happen or and where does it happen well it has to be built from the ground up worldwide wow. and that is happening we're starting to see these what's called fiber to fiber technologies which is a green chemistry converting polyester into recycled pet um so there's a number of well people are working on it all around the world and we, we do R&D here as well. We're working on a cellulose, uh, using cotton as a cellulose input. So, <clears throat> excuse me, how you take, how you take a garment and what, what other applications it can be used for. So you look at all the raft of different things cellulose is used for. So cellulose is, you know, trees and paper. Mm-hmm. So it can go into an enormous range of things from makeup through to egg cartons, paper, roading, you know, a vast array of different things. So um, globally, we just, we start, everyone's, everyone's that's working in the sector is working on it from the ground up. So they're really emerging technologies. Mm. What kind of people are, are working at the formery? Are they like scientist people or are they systems people? Or what, what kind of skills do you have that you're... On our team. Um, yeah, yeah. Our CEO, Peter, has a technology background. And so, and that's really great because what we've also developed is a digital platform so we can track and measure the environmental impacts of clothing. So we did a a, um, decommissioning project with Wellington Zoo. They were decommissioning their uniforms, getting new uniforms, highly aware of the environmental impacts. So what was the best way to deal with them? So we worked through the decommissioning with them and then we created a case study out of it so we could measure what the environmental impacts of that decommissioning was and we created a case study out of it and what sat behind it was a really complex excel spreadsheet which 
I wouldn't even touch. <laughs> so I would destroy it. But um, and we realised from that if we could digitise it, it would be so much easier. So that's what we're building at the moment. We've just done our minimum viable product, and it's a platform that companies can use to measure the impacts of their uniforms, so that they can do things like if you had a whole lot of new branded uniforms, you could carbon offset them. So it measures the garments in terms of carbon, water and the financial impacts of it. Cool. So, so what what was the impact of that of that one case where you were looking at the zoo? It's quite a small organization, but Yeah, 150 uniforms and it conserved eight hundred thousand litres of water. What, what was it that conserved that water? Um, by the garment, instead of going to landfill for them being reused. So what yeah, we did, yeah. we actually put them back into community use because there was so much value still in the uniforms. You imagine zookeepers' uniforms are really robust, mm. so they had a lot of life in them. So we debranded them, covered up the embroidery, and then they went back into community use for community gardens and things like that. So, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And you are able to measure... The water that was saved? The water, 800,000 litres. And the carbon, oh, I can't remember it off the top of my head. It was something like 10,000 kilos. And I'm reluctant to say it out loud because mm-hmm. I'd need to check. <laughs> but it was, you know, a reasonable amount. Yeah, yeah. Oh, f- fabulous. So, um, and and was, was part of what you were working with the zoo on is um, how... What, what kind of fabrics to buy for their new uniform? Yeah, so how the, the solutions for garments when you finish wearing them really inform what you purchase up front. So their purchasing's changed quite a bit hmm. as a result of that and result of, you know, just better informed. But for smaller organisations like zoos, it's really difficult to navigate because... Um, Obviously, the size of the organisation, they don't need a specialist in textiles on their team. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, so because it's not one of their core skills, often um, often it, it's unknown territory they're trying to navigate. Yeah. So in the decommissioning process, what came out of it were lessons learned and what they could take back into their new procurement. Yeah. So is this, this might be a useful lesson for me as well. What, what type of fabrics were you able to recommend that have a good, useful, uh, end-of-life, uh, second-life type opportunities to them? Or um, It's really, really difficult because... Um, how do I explain it? They, every garment has an impact. And sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's its creation that has an impact, and then its end of life also has an impact. Yeah. So, so every every kilo of textile that ends up in landfill creates 3.6 kilos of greenhouse gases. Mm. So um, material selection is important, but also equally important is the end-of-life plan. Mm. 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 So there's no there's no golden rule of you should always use natural fibres or some rule like that because really as long as something can be reused or recycled in a useful way, then 
then it could also be a good fabric for... Yeah, well, it's complex and it's nuanced. So (laughs) one of the things we did is... um, They've been talked into buying... They had always had wool jerseys and then yeah. they were talked into buying these acrylic mixed jerseys and they're just hideous and acrylic is one of the most environmentally unsustainable textiles mm. um, so they've gone back to wool jerseys but one of the issues with things like acrylic and polyesters is is that they shed massive amounts of fibres when you wash them so when you're washing them um, and they go into the waste the you know washing machine water goes into the wastewater mm-hmm that's when a lot of microfiber contamination happens and accounts for something like 30% of plastic pollution in the world over. Yikes. Yeah. Hmm. Um, oh, yes. Uh, that's a bit spooky. So um, what did they decide on in the end? So, oh, so they went to wool? They went to they wool went, jerseys? They went to wool jerseys. Um, they're now looking at other textiles. So cotton... Is so dominant in the market, but cotton it requires incredible amounts of water mm. to make cotton. So, for a single t-shirt, it takes about three years of a person's drinking water to create. Oh, yeah, that's phenomenal. Vast amounts, yeah. vast amounts. So, looking at but the the cotton industry's been so dominant that it's held other fibres back, like hemp and whole lot of noble fibres that were around, you know, generations ago, hardly ever used anymore. So we've seen this resurgence of other natural fibres as the awareness of cotton grows. Mm. So I read an interesting thing the other day that um, unwittingly we're wearing the freshwater supplies of, of Asia just through our garments because it requires such vast amounts of water. Yeah. And in places like India where a lot of it's growing... Um, Millions of people are having to move because of lack of water resources, so they don't even have enough to drink. So then we have to question, well, if people don't have enough water to drink, what is the land use like? Why are we growing? Why is cotton being grown when it's um, in you know in dire need of water resources? Hmm. So there becomes a competition between between humans and and commercial crops. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, thank you. The um, I'd love to hear more about your background, Bernadette. How did you come to be, uh, I guess, first working on your interiors or that, that sort of textile world? And then why do you think you were drawn into this more environmental space? Um, I grew up with a mother who was really, she was a seamstress. She was, in, she used to, spin all the wool for our clo- for our jerseys and then knit them. Um, she would make everything we wore. She'd make all the curtains in the house. She'd even make our hankies. So I grew up in that sort of environment, weaving and spinning and carding and making and sewing and pattern making. So my mother taught us all these disciplines. Mm-hmm. So it was just nurture, really. And then I wanted to do fine arts when I left school and mum said you'll never make any money like that so I thought okay well (laughs) I can't do what I want I'm not doing it so I ended up just getting the first job that came along which was working for customs and that was a really good education around importing and exporting and still has value in our business today um 
so I went into that, and then I and then I moved to Sydney and ended up working for an interiors textile company. Mm-hmm. And I've worked in textiles and fashion most of my life, and it wasn't any great game plan. It was just sort of following one foot in front of the other. <laughs> yeah. And how did you end up in Wellington? I was born and bred here. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't moved far. Well, Back actually, to the no, motherland. Yeah, yeah, well, I have, actually. I um. I've lived in Australia and Sydney, I've lived in London, I've lived in Milan, and um, and we only ended up back in Wellington by accident because my um, we, were, we were living in Milan and it was my son's 21st and so we came home for that. And then my husband went into heart failure, picked up a bacteria in um in Milan, that ate away his heart valve, and so he was under the infectious disease team at Wellington Hospital for a year. So he had to stay put, and it's just been the best thing, the best thing for the business, the best thing for us, and, yeah, fortunate. Wow. So how long ago was that? That was 2016. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. And, and thumbs up to Wellington Hospital. They did an incredible, incredible job. Great. Yeah. I'm oh. so glad to hear that. Yeah, you had a happy a outcome. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah. It was a really good... He wasn't expected to live and just through the incredible skill and getting on a, um, a trial drug that turned his outcome around. So, yeah. Hmm. He's fit and healthy, running up and down Wellington Hills. Brilliant. All right. That is fabulous. Um, uh, in the last minute before we'll um, uh, transition to the second half of the show, what's next for the formery and how can people learn more about it? Um, the best thing to do is to jump on our textile reuse program website, so textilereuse.com, and there's a whole lot of resources and information on there, research, etc. if you're interested. And what's next um, next week I'm off to Perth. I'm presenting the program and our platform at Western Australia's Waste and Recycling Conference. So that's that. That's our immediate next. Neat. Yeah. And then October we are um, being invited as cohorts into the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, which we are extremely excited about. Cool. So do you find this is like a, a, a real growing area of interest that people all over the world are starting to adopt? Yeah, massively. Because if, you know, only 1% of clothing resources are recycled, there's massive resource loss and room for another economy in there. So it's a huge growth area, yeah. Neat. Well, thanks for sharing your story with us, Bernadette. Thank you, Laura. It's great. Thank you. That was really interesting. Um, I am going to pop on to see us through to the next guest. Um, this is a song by an old Wellington band called Sugarbug, and it's called Flicker.
program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding the Access Internet Radio Project.